Yay. We are going to be doing our first review of the new season. Yay. We're going to be reviewing Starfinder, and we are going to start all of our reviews with a brand new segment that I think is going to be a lot of fun. Ryan, would you please describe the room? A humanoid shaped and human sized insect sits with its multiple legs crossed in the middle of a room on a large pillow. The room is made of metal. There are bits of carapace and crystal hanging around the room. And as the creature's insects twitch, it draws on the accumulated and aggregate hive mind it is part of to search into the future and determine the best course of action for its ship. Ben, would you please describe the room? It's a bar, like many bars. Uh, It's poor, broken down, clearly run more out of habit than actual any profitability. The metal has long since lost its sheen on the bar top, and it's kept in very poor disrepair. However, there is one thing that makes the bar unique, or at least rare, and that is there's a viewport beneath it to the stars. And in space, there is a ship that has slowly been breaking apart for the last 50 years as it goes further and further into a gravity well. Jared, would you please describe the room? You are sitting in your comfortable faux leather chair. All of its cracks perfectly flow with your body. You're the one who broke this chair in. The rest of this pilot's cockpit, it's not in great shape. There's no more paint on anything. Your hands and saliva as it runs across everything has worn it all off. Outside your cockpit, in the cold, hard darkness of space, the butterfly-like creature holds up a bag. It wants to trade you for pure gold. You reach inside the pocket in your mouth, in your cheek, and pull out a saliva-covered gun. Showing it, is this enough for trade? Today we'll be reviewing Starfinder. Thank you everybody for those room descriptions. So first off, let's talk about the setting of Starfinder. It's pretty simple. It's Pathfinder, but in space. No, really. It's the standard Pathfinder setting a couple thousand years in the future. So standard high fantasy with dwarves and elves and wizards, etc. Pathfinder was itself kind of a streamlined and cleaned up version of the third edition D&D that Paizo put out at the end of third edition. It is occasionally thought of as D&D 3.75, and it has a lot of things that someone familiar with the 3 and 3.5 D&Ds will recognize. It certainly started out there, but as Pathfinder has moved on, it has found its own niche. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Still, definitely a lot of things crystallized as if in amber from my early days reading 3.5. Yeah. Do you want 3.5 D&D with starships and cybernetics and laser guns and aliens? Then Pathfinder's the game for you. Well, Starfinder. Uh, Excuse me. Then Starfinder is the game for you. Pathfinder takes place on a planet called Galarian. Now, how did they manage to fit Galarian into... Starfinder? Well, Galarian is missing. Uh, it's just somewhere else. Totally, its its orbit is still there, but ooh, it's been lost. So the Starfinder setting has an event called 
the Gap, which is a name that actually downplays the significance of the the actual event quite a lot. Reliable historical records only go back about 300 years. All records and all memories from before that point either don't exist or are completely unreliable. All memories, too. So people woke up one day and they couldn't remember anything about their lives before that moment. Now, we are talking Hollywood amnesia here. They had all the the knowledge and, and skills, but they had no context. So they knew who their spouse was knew lots of things about them, but um, couldn't remember how they met or how they fell in love. Theoretical sociologists eat your heart out. Yes. So the gap does have a clear start point. There are historical records that are unchanged by the gap, but those are all from so far in the past. They aren't helpful. They don't really matter. So there's this like, at some point in the past to 300 years ago, it's gone now. During the gap is when Galarian disappeared, and cosmic entities who are asked can confirm that it still exists, as do the descendants of those who once lived there. We'll get to that in a minute. But it can't be reached by any means, and that appears to be anything that anyone knows about the subject, or at least we'll talk about. So they have neatly stepped out of their own way timeline-wise. They don't have to tell you how Pathfinder unfolds, and they set up a great meta-story mystery all But the hilarious part is they really, in doing so, made the largest plot point in the book. But anyway, let's get back to what makes this setting unique. So there's there's a bunch of new alien races to play. All of the fantasy races from D&D that are, you know, elves, dwarves, etc., They all exist in the Starfinder universe, but they are called legacy races and are much less common than the races the games focus on. The reason that they are much less common is because the world that they are from doesn't exist anymore and no one knows where it is. And therefore, sorry, it exists, but cannot be reached or known in any way. And therefore... They are few in number. To be fair, if you wanted to play on Galarian, you can go play normal Pathfinder. There's actually even a portion of Pathfinder that has crazy androids and laser guns in it. So go nuts. The big exception to this rule that Jared just mentioned is humans. Humans are still one of the main races and they're freaking everywhere. But aside from humans, let's talk about some of the new races they introduced in the core book. First, there are androids, which you can probably guess. They are biomechanical people. They're modeled after your humans. And their biggest advantage is they can just be in space. That's, they can just walk around, be cool. They're full citizens in most parts of the packed world, which we'll talk about in a minute. And also, they do in fact have souls, and sometimes go through a ritual to release the soul in them and gain a new soul, and something they call renewing. Then we have the Kasathas. They are four-armed ancient aliens. They have bulbous heads. They have a very rigid society and are very traditional. They come from a desert world and get a lot of bonuses for moving through difficult terrain. They feel somewhat like Fremen mixed with traditional elves. That's certainly how I would describe them. The Lashentas are matriarchal telepaths. They have feelers on top of their heads. Culturally speaking, they revere knowledge and as a species, they went for the dimorphic species, so there is a subspecies of Lashuntas that is stronger but less intelligent, and another that is more intelligent but less physically capable. An interesting note, it's not sexual dimorphism. No, no. it's just species dimorphism. We're, th- we're, ta- we're talking about ants. They're, we're talking about ants. There are soldier ants, there are worker ants, there are queen ants, etc. Think Except of it they in the get same to pick. Way. 
at like their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah is them picking what they're going to grow up and be like it's, it's wow you to pick your cast um their ritual of becoming an adult you're i mean you're not wrong but as the only <laughs> jew on the podcast wow um okay their ritual uh, of becoming an adult is picking the biological cast to which they will be confined for the rest of their lives talk about some serious ennui i have opinions about biological determinism in games guys yeah uh we can't guess my favorite of the new races are the sheerans they are insectoids who were once part of a vast hive mind. They can still connect to it in some ways. They are now psychic individuals who have like a whole hive mutated off of the vast hive mind. And so they are now all psychic individuals who are actually physically addicted to making choices and expressing their individuality. All of this while still being, you know, group oriented because until like 200 years ago, you know, hive mind. Meanwhile, the Vesk are the heavily muscled warlike reptilian species. They are seven feet tall, naturally resistant to damage. They are empire builders and colonizers, and they view violence as the best way to solve their problems at a cultural level. And finally, the Yosoki, that's how I'm going to pronounce that. Sure. Seems Um, great. Are tiny, clever little rat people. They have cheek pouches where they can store things like holdout pistols. (laughs) Probably shouldn't shoot them from their cheek pouches, but that would be an interesting cybernetic upgrade. If you had like gauges in your cheeks, then <laughs> you shoot yes. it out the hole in your cheek. That's yes. awesome. <laughs> Hippies in space with holdout pistols. I'm down, people. Hippies and um, holdout pistols is the next. That's what I want to play. Screw Dungeons and Dragons. It's hippies and holdout pistols from now on. Just as a side note, the art for the Yosoki is really, really great. I think it's my favorite art in the core book. They look very cute and tiny while still looking dangerous and mischievous and that's just great. The, the end, that's great. So travel. Every setting in space has to address faster than light travel. And the way it's done in Starfinder is through drift engines. Three years after the gap, three different minor deities of technology and knowledge combined themselves into a new being called Triune. And Triune imparted the knowledge of how to make easy, reliable engines to jump into their own personal plane of existence called the Drift and then jump back. In fact, Triune imparted this knowledge across the entire galaxy, regardless of whether or not the recipients could actually build the engine or not at the time. The book mentions explorers finding like Neolithic cave paintings depicting the blueprints for these gap engines. The drift is another major plot point of the setting. It's mostly empty, mostly, but when you jump there, real difficulty is jumping back to the place you want to go. So navigators employ beacons scattered across the galaxy to help them zero in. And that means the more system is mapped, the quicker it is to get to. It's not about how far you travel, but how well known the place is. And the reason I said it's mostly empty is every time you jump there, a small piece of a random plane gets pulled into the drift, making it slightly bigger. That's a fun story hook. Anyway, the solar system that Galarian was part of is now referred to as the Pact World. And the Pact Worlds have the largest collection of beacons in the galaxy. And so that ends up being your center of trade and commerce because, like Ryan said, that makes it easier to navigate in and out of the drift. The Pact Worlds are what the core book focuses on. Not to say you can't make up your own story and your own solar system, but if you are following the plot points in the book and want to focus on where they expect you to be, you're going to be in the Pact World. 
I think that's a pretty common sci-fi trope of there is sort of the center and then as you go farther out it gets less densely populated by the known things and can go explore. So for the next section, why don't we find out what does this lever do? Pull the lever! So the mechanics for Starfinder. First off, it's a D20 system. So if you played 5th edition D&D, you're gonna be pretty familiar, but there are a lot more modifiers and conditions, fiddly bits in Starfinder. Specifically, you have your race, your theme, and your class. Your theme is your job your character does. For example, an ace pilot, a mercenary, or a priest. They help you handle things you want your character to be good at and give you kind of a concept. All the themes have the same type of ability at a level one. It's called theme knowledge, and it reduces the difficulty for all things that someone in that job would need to know, but either don't really fall under other skills or might not be worth investing your character deeply into. You'll get more theme bonuses at different levels. For instance, Ace Pilot's theme knowledge reduces the difficulty to know about starship models, parts, famous pilots, etc. Then at level 6, they can use half their pilot skill instead of their rank in repair if that's better for them. So then they don't have to worry about putting points into repair instead of something else because they'll they'll be good enough at it. If you're familiar with 5th edition D&D, backgrounds are similar but obviously you only get your background when you make your character. This is like a background that advances with your character. So the classes keep the same general roles you might see in a game about large lizards living in caves, but they are a bit different. Envoys are similar to bards, mostly. They're usually social characters, they have excellent skills, and they're great at supporting their allies and demoralizing their enemies. They don't use magic, it's all skill for them. They can be a lot less of the support character than a bard, though. They can do combat perfectly well, and they're often the face of the group. Mechanics are gear-focused characters who can improve their own equipment, gain access to enemy computer systems, and they get to either have their choice of an AI companion of their own design that is a drone and follows them around, or a piece of cyberware they directly interface with. A mystic might be considered most similar to a cleric. They're a focused spellcaster channeling power from something that is greater than themselves. That might be a deity, a philosophy, the energy that connects all living things, a psychic gestalt, or something, you know, a little bit more void of space. Whatever you want. The operative is your rogue. Lots of skills, they study the fog and gain bonuses against them, and they have a lot of talents they can pick up to help them diversify. Solarians are actually pretty unique to the setting. Uh, they manipulate the cosmic energy of stars in the void to protect themselves or to smite their enemies. I don't know if they really have a fantasy counterpart. Maybe monk? Maybe paladins, I guess? Iron Man powered by a star is absolutely a viable build here, and I'm here for it. Soldiers are fighters. They're tough. They're good at combat. They learn a special fighting style to make them unique. There are a special set of feats. Everyone can pick from them, but they are specially for your soldiers to choose as a, a special group of feats that they get when they level up. Technomancers are wizards who blend magic and technology. They learn meta magic tricks to help them adapt to any situation. I would say they lean pretty heavily on the magic, but that might be more of an opinion. Yeah, I think they kind of do. I, I mean, I think that's the natural build for them, but I don't think you have to play them that way. But I think that's kind of the assumption. I mean, they're going to be good at magic. And if you want to, if you want to, you know, diversify into doing a lot of tech stuff, they have lots of spells to help you work around problems. They 
don't have to approach situations the way other classes do. So first thing about these classes, they are extremely customizable. They are meant to be broad categories that let you mix and match what you focus on instead of like, this is what you are, direct paths. The second thing about these classes, Starfinder makes the assumption that your character is at least minimally adept at mundane combat. And what I mean when I say that is, this is a sci-fi game with laser gun, and they expect you to shoot them while whispering pew pew under your breath. Pew pew. Pew pew. Pew pew. So weapons and armor scale up a lot more than a typical D&D game. It's not like, oh, you get a long sword plus plus one. Like, no, I have a plasma sword now. It just does a whole lot more damage. So even at high levels, a mundane weapon can still be very deadly and dangerous to you. So you can't just dump all your combat abilities and expect to get by with just magic. I mean, you can. There's a build for that. It's just, it's a trap. It's a terrible trap that's been <laughs> given to you. Wow. It's a trap. Don't your, do it. Your Technomancer wizard should still probably have a laser gun. I'm just saying. Your Technomancer wizard running around saying, no, it's okay. I'll have five in decks. Don't let them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so one of the things that they do that's a little unique is they have a system called stamina points, which are a buffer to your hit points that represent you getting beat up without actually hurt. And they recover much faster. And there's a lot of abilities that help you recover them more easily. The other new thing they introduce are called resolve points. And they're used to power a lot of class abilities. And they are what you spend to heal stamina damage. So instead of having a lot of once per day abilities from different places on your character sheet, most of your abilities will just be, you can do this. And if you want to do it again, you have to spend a resolve point to do it. Starfinder and Pathfinder, for that matter, both assume that you'll be using a tactical map with minis. This is a much more tactical game than 5th edition D&D. Yes, you can definitely use minis in D&D, but this is definitely a crunchier game. This is more complex. There are more modifiers, more conditions, more options. Having The war game element is a little more important in the evocative noun finder games. <laughs> that is a great way to phrase that. It's time move on to our next section, stunts. Stunts are going to be what is unique to this system. What does this system put a focus on that most games do not? Right out the gate, the one that stands out to me, I already talked about this a little bit, the combination of the classes and your theme means that characters feel way more varied than they do in most rigid class-based games. In D&D, for instance, you're going to have to go pretty high in level for one barbarian to be mechanically different enough from another barbarian that it feels like two players could play them without stepping on each other's roles. Like if you have two level one barbarians in D&D, they're going to be doing the exact same thing. They are, aside from roleplay, the same character. Yeah, for those early and mid-levels in D&D, characters of the same class are definitely just separated by roleplay, regardless of your background or anything else. There might be a few exceptions, but the first two levels of, of 5e, for instance, you're only barely your class. They are pointless levels in terms of <laughs> what character class you're playing. Tell us how you really feel. Wow. So Starfinder doesn't want that to happen. They really want your character to feel like your character and that's different from everyone else's character. A good example of this is the mechanic. You could play two very different ones and have players feel very different niches very early on in the game. So next we're going to talk about critical hits, which are the things that we think are really shining parts of this game. I'm going to start small and funny, but when they introduce each race, they have a little sidebar that's like, 
like, play this race if you want this experience. And the one they have for humans is hilarious and super honest. And I quote, If you play a human, you are likely to see yourself as the hero of your own story, surely destined for some form of greatness. And that makes me laugh really hard again. That's accurate and to the point. I, staying small, really enjoy the spell overview page. I really think every game that has a lot of spells should have have a few pages like this where it's just a real quick overview of each and every one, but enough, but not just a table. I really like how they made each class incredibly modular and customizable with the themes. You want to play a soldier priest? Okay. You want to play a mystic bounty hunter? Absolutely defined. So there are two themes. Speaking of themes, these are like the equivalent of your background, right? There are two themes I really enjoy. I like the Xeno Seeker a lot. You are obsessed with and drawn to meeting species that are not your own for whatever reason. This can be because you think they have valuable cultural knowledge to teach you or your character might think that you are better than them and want to kick the ass of every species in the galaxy. Whatever floats your boat. P.S. Our standard sidebar here. If you are playing a xenophobic xenoseeker, make sure your party is okay with this and make sure you are not sending Nazi dog whistles into the universe. That is all. The other theme that I super duper love, and this is what I would play hands down were we to play Starfinder. It's the icon. Thanks to the interstellar space internet, information travels incredibly far and fast. This has made you space famous. You are a celebrity, whether it's a space sports star or war hero or space scientist. You get recognized regularly in the pack worlds. You might be traveling to hide from your celebrity or to spread it. Basically, you are somebody who would show up on space TMZ and paparazzi followers. I really like the idea of a famous space scientist getting recognized walking down the street because does that happen to normal scientists? No. Go out there with your special space science and get recognized walking right. down the street what kind of science do you do space science play carl sagan i'm just wondering <laughs> if you still get assaulted by um flat earthers no oh yeah oh yeah definite you study worms in specific types of asteroid deposits Asteroids. that's what you do and Asteroids. yet somehow like you're part of the conspiracy you don't you understand <laughs> So I see? really love <laughs> <laughs> the Sheeran. We mentioned them before. They're the so cool. They're recently liberated insectoid species from a hive mind, and they are physically addicted to making decisions. Going to Space Burger King and deciding between the Graviton Burger and the Supernova Spicy Chicken Sandwich gives them a literal high. So I mentioned that if we were to play this, I would play a Sheeran. I want to play a Sheeran who is a clothes horse and literally goes clothes shopping to get high. That's the character I. I want to play and I am in. So you can force a corpse to babble and then there's a 10% chance it will tell you secrets. And I absolutely love this. The skill has very little utility, but is really fun. It's really good at freaking people out. Is it? If a corpse started talking to me, I'd be freaked out. Are you on a spaceship? If there was a corpse on a spaceship that was babbling, I would definitely be freaked out. I don't know. I just, you know, these are important questions. The context of the spaceship does not make it less freaky, Ben. 
Really? Are you sure? There are a lot of game settings that mix magic and high technology, and it's really hard to balance. A lot of the time, one is way better than the other. I think they do a really good job here of making both viable and reasonable paths to proceed. Speaking of that technology, I really appreciate that they made equipment scale so well, so that a soldier at high level isn't really handicapped like in a lot of other games compared to spellcasters. They're much tougher because of their armor, they have much better weapons, they have a lot more options this way. Yeah, the void grenades or whatever they are. I know that's not what they call them, but that's what I think about them as. Going off what Ryan said, I love how much equipment is in this game. Something that I get low-key annoyed at about a lot of games is they don't have statted out a whole bunch of low to mid-tier weapons. They have one weapon for each thing that you would want to do, like, one axe that hits real good, one axe that swings real fast. Here they've got like four for each thing and they're all kind of good in different ways and I really enjoy that. So I know we're here to review the core book, but I think it's important to mention the Alien Archive book, which is like the bestiary equivalent from D&D Pathfinder. It's really quite great. This is going to be partially a botch too later on. Yeah, absolutely. We will talk about how much I hate the fact that you need an Alien Archive later on on, but the book itself is quite nice. Some of it is there's enough callbacks to D&D and Pathfinder to satisfy that fantasy itch, but it's not just Pathfinder baddies in space. There's a lot of really cool original things in there, and the art is like really high quality. A lot of the creatures in the Alien Archive have added equipment or equipment modifications that you can only get from dealing with that species, which I think is an interesting touch. The Azatar are a personal favorite of mine. They look like small winged children that are like deep purple and blue in color. They have butterfly-ish wings. They live in the deep void of space. They can turn themselves into starlight, and are capable of interstellar travel not through the drift. They can just, we live in space and can travel from star system to star system by ourselves. Screw you. I just like adding in space to the end of any setting. If you've got a setting, put it in space. I like it more now. Deadlands in space. Oh God, I would be in that. I would play Deadlands in space really really hard. That actually exists. They made that. Okay, send me the link. (laughs) Yeah, I would play that. (laughs) They made a space opera setting for Chronicles of Darkness, if anyone's interested. So next, we're going to talk about botches, which are the things that we think the game didn't do their best at. Like a lot of miniature-based games, Starfinder expects you to be a power gamer. And as a table, you need to either agree that no one is going to min-max, and you're just going to make your enemies weaker than the book tells you to, or you need to all min-max your little nerdy little min-maxing hearts out. Having a party that mixes these two styles styles of play just doesn't function, your game won't work. And I'll add to Jared's point, and this isn't Pathfinder Starfinder's fault specifically. This is kind of a general word of caution for any game when the range of possible values a, ch- a character can achieve in something gets really big, you can lose all perspective on what a good role or a good pool looks like. A wild example is Mutants and Masterminds, which also has this problem. When there's no specific reason why you shouldn't have a plus 15 and a certain skill, 
scale, you have obliterated all sense of scale. So like, what is the functional difference between a 23 on a skill check and a 35 on a skill check if the difficulty was 20, right? If you have a character who gets a 26 on average with a roll of a d20 for something and everyone else in the party is averaging a 12 or a 13, do you change all your DCs to account for Mr. Nonsense over there, even if you're going to start mathematically pricing the other characters out? Or like, what do you do? And in summary, A, sometimes there's just no gosh damn reason for a pool to be able to get so big. And B, you're gonna have to think about it and put some controls on it before it gets out of hand. I was Mr. Nonsense for that example, by the way. It's okay. That just means you did it right. No, it means I didn't fit with the rest of the party. There are already a lot of supplements for Starfinder. And don't get me wrong, that's great. But Pathfinder eventually became bloated with options. There was serious power creep as each new supplement added things that were a little bit better than things that came before it. And it really became a detriment to the game eventually. I'm worried the same thing will happen to Starfinder. I would say that referring back to the wild example of Mutants and Masterminds, the trick with Mutants and Masterminds Masterminds, if you're familiar, it has the same problem of there are all sorts of source books and new mechanics that come out that have come out for it. You have to make a decision about what's going to be allowed in your game. You have to do the same thing with Starfinder and Pathfinder. So straight up, don't buy the core book. I think we probably all did, but there is a starter box with little cardboard minis and a bunch of other things that you will find helpful and a oddly shortened version of the core book and Millie I haven't bought it so I don't know for sure but it's $20 less than the core book and it'll give you everything you need to actually start playing so here's the thing there are zero antagonists in the core book no there is one goblin example I'm sorry there is one antagonist in the core book I really hate it hate, hate, hate it. When a setting makes you buy multiple books in order to start playing. I have no problem with supplements and stuff that add in more information and more options, but one book should be all you need to play. You need at minimum two books to play Starfinder. You need at the very least the core book and the first Alien Archive, but practically you need four. Like if you actually want to play this game, you need the core book, the armory, the Alien Archive, and Galactic magic unless you get that starter kit but even there even when you buy the starter kit it only gives you i think like a third of the equipment that's in the armory and a third of the magic that's in the galactic magic book i mean like it will at least let you start playing but it's to contrast shout out to audix path whenever they publish a chronicles of darkness book now you have everything you need even if it is a it is a separate side splat it is changing the loss it is mage the awakening everything in that book will let you sit down and start playing immediately you don't need the blue base mortal template book to start playing in addition to whatever setting specific game you're playing and as a slight debotching of this botch i will say that if you don't care about having physical books if you are just willing to buy only the pdfs the pdfs are pretty cheap you can get everything you can get the four books you need to start really playing for like 55 bucks if you only care about pdfs if you care about the actual physical books you're looking at like 150 before you can play and that doesn't feel acceptable to me 
Oh, and uh, when you're going to get those PDFs, their website from the early 2000s. I don't know. There's there's a lot of really good website tools out there now, and they are not using them. It's kind of heartbreaking because this is a sci-fi game, and it's a little frustrating to try and figure out how to buy the dang game. And I got a little irate just trying to figure out what thing to purchase. Because if I'm trying to give you my money, I expect you to make it easy. Real talk. Next, I don't understand why we decided to have the Lightbringer from Destiny in here, aka the Solarian. To me, they don't make any sense in the in the context of the setting. Yeah, I just totally disagree. I think the Solarians are super neat. I they don't feel Destiny-ish to me. They feel like they're kind of closer to like a warlock from Pathfinder or DD. A, a warlock from destiny just because they have the same name because there's only so many fantasy names you can have a warlock from DD is very different from a warlock in destiny and we all know it they Except have a moat of sun that follows them around they can have a moat of sun that follows them around they do not all but they are all powered by the sun or a supernova or, or whatever they have chosen a black hole whatever they've chosen their thing to be i just love the idea of your patron being an inanimate thing of space than being well i made a deal with this demon or this god i really like being like described the lightbringer from destiny no i didn't the lightbringer is an entity it's not just a star it is a thinking entity and i think that's a huge difference for me it feels like a shaman in space that's what it feels like i represent the earth and the trees except i represent space all right so remember when i said they made equipment at different effect levels they alternate leveling up the different versions of the equipment as an example there are different tiers of laser gun right and sure that makes sense you know the lasers are different frequencies they do more damage they go up but they only really give you a, a very brief description of, of why they're different and i think it's a missed opportunity i would have wanted to see them grouped into quality levels associated with a brand everyone knows katani blasters are better than theon blasters and as you go up you you upgrade your equipment until you're wearing the Gucci power armor. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's what I wanted. The Gucci power armor and the like Mustang Gatling gun. Those are the things that I wanted the in this game. boots with the fur. Yes. This is my Yuland Waitani spaceship. Yes. Don't don't fly that one. That's that's trap. <laughs> no, that's your starter one. That's the really cheap one. The Wayland Yutani one. Yeah. They, you know, they go missing a lot. It's really weird. No one knows why. It's Yuland Waitani. Oh. The serial number is scraped off. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's still the cheap one. So I hate it when fantasy settings don't give me a pronunciation guide. I want to be able to sit down with players of the same game who are not from my playgroup and have a conversation and have everybody know exactly what we are talking about and not have to be like, do you mean this? Do you mean this? Do you mean this? Every 20 seconds. It is just my personal pet peeve. If you are making a fantasy setting, give me a pronunciation guide or I hate you. Love you. It's possible I'm just still traumatized from the Tsumitsi slash Shamase debacle of Vampire the Masquerade. Anyway, this is Pathfinder in space. Pathfinder is sort of a streamlined, yet somehow less so and more wargamey D&D. And D&D is, and I'm, I'm saying this myself as someone who is perfectly willing to, on a given day, play D&D with my friends, but D&D is generic high fantasy violence simulator. If you don't like those things, I'm sorry. This game is not for you. Okay, 
Okay, so for our next segment, we're going to be talking about story hooks. What really excites us about this game? What we would want to play, character, campaign, whatever it is we would be excited about. I want to play a member of an order of mystical warriors who call upon their fallen predecessors to aid them in combat. They've made a personal afterlife of this adopted cultural ancestor worship and taken anyone who matches their ethics, no matter the species. And the greatest censure in that order is being cast out of their self-built Valhalla. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I would play that. I want to be in a girl or boy band. Travel the universe. Build a following. You don't even have to be part of the band. You could be their managers. Finding new cultures for them to increase their hollow net share or whatever you want to call it. We call it the space internet, Ben. Instead of fighting space goblins after the show, you fight space paparazzi. There's space goblins too. Who's to say that space goblins can't grow up to be space paparazzi? I think it'd also be really fun to play as part of the band. You could take it very dark or very light. So I feel kind of bad that the hook that I'm most interested in for this setting, it's the mystery on the tin. It's the standard thing. But I would really love to play a group of researchers trying to figure out what happened to the gap. The gods will tell us that it still exists, but we they don't know where and they won't tell us anything about it. What's going on? I want to find it. I want answers and I want to bend the universe to my will. I want to play really cocky space scientists who solve the universe's greatest mysteries. That's what I want. Is that too much to ask? That's what I want to be when I grow up. Right? Anyway, for me, sure, some relatively, previously relatively minor technology gods join together to form the Triune and share their drift engine with all of the sapient species of the galaxy. Sure. But what about all of the other minor deities and cosmic entities just kicking around out there in space? Maybe they're cropping up in other places, creating strange geometric patterns in natural forms or constellations and somehow embedding them with their own plans for ways of traversing the galaxy without the drift, perhaps in a different, faster, more elegant way than the drift, or perhaps in a more terrible way than the drift, because it's been too long since I watched Event Horizon. And maybe you're going on a search for these strange, non-divine, alternate methods looking for these transmissions from beyond because it's Pathfinder. So I want to play an Oracle, damn it. So our last segment, something that we're going to be adding to all of our reviews is there are a lot of one page or two page RPGs out there that we really love and want to highlight, but they're just not in detail enough to do a whole review episode. So we're going to end every review episode with what we are calling the one in five, where we are going to review one of these one page RPGs in five minutes. Ryan, what's our one page RPG of the day? Uh, I don't want to mislead our audience. It's actually more than one page. But the RPG I'm doing is still very indie and pretty small, called Barbarians of Lemuria. The core concept can be summarized in the first part of the first sentence of the book. It is a savage age of sorcery and bloodshed. And that's really the stuff you need to know to get going. Do you like Conan? Great. You're going to be perfectly happy here. The system's very simple. It's 2d6. You add a stat and a skill if applicable. You have uh, backgrounds that are actually ranked from things you've done in the past. And if something makes sense that, you know, you were a servant going around unnoticed, just walking around, that's something servants do. So you can add that to your role. It's very elegant. But the reason I'm talking about it, the reason I love this game is the magic system. The magic system breaks spells down into four circles. The first circle is 
cantrips, right? You light the fire, whatever. The second is something that is an obvious magical effect, but really it's not something a person couldn't do on their own. You know, I, I shoot lightning at someone. Sure, that's really impressive, but at the end of the day, I could have just stabbed the sword. Just done damage. Whatever. The next one is bigger. This is turning people into stone. This is mind controlling people. This is summoning a ship from the bottom of the ocean, crewed with the skeletons of the people who died on it. And the last circle is big things. Causing fire to rain on a city. Cursing a royal bloodline to all become cannibals. Summoning a volcano or a plague or an earthquake. Biblical stuff. So that's cool. But the way they make it unique is when you cast a spell, you have to make a roll. But you have to spend sorcery points to power the spell. Sure. And the sorcery points regenerate based on what level of the spell you cast. So if you cast something pretty small, it'll generate that night. If you cast one of the big ones, you, you cause a comet to hit a city. Yeah, that's going to regenerate next month and you're going to be permanently lessened by it. But you can do it if you want to. And the other thing that's really neat, you can lower the cost of these spells by meeting certain criteria. So the base ones, right? The, the stuff you want to do a lot, shooting lightning at people, protecting yourself from arrows, things like obviously gesturing and, and speaking. That's one. Having a piece of your target, a piece of hair or finger, having line of sight to them. Anything that fits into those themes of like pulpy sorcerers can reduce the cost. And therefore, you get to keep more sorcery points that will might take longer to regenerate. And as you go up, they become more and more difficult to produce, right? So you might have to ritually cleanse yourself or shave off all your hair. You have to do preparations. You have to expend the unique resource to do it, which gives you the plot hook to like, you have to go into that cave of wonders over there and retrieve this giant ruby so I can break it and cast this spell. And it's just really, really great Ludo narrative. I love it. I love how they break it down into you can do really powerful stuff, but boy howdy, if you do it on the fly when you're not prepared for it, you're gonna pay out the nose for it. And I think that's a great way to handle it. Are all of your characters, are you guys all expected to use magic or is magic just one section of... It's it? just one section. The book has dozens, I think. It has a lot of, of character classes. It has alchemists. It has priests who can bless people and curse people. It has obviously barbarians and rogues. It has, it has a lot of things. And magic is very powerful, but very difficult and has a lot of drawbacks. In fact, every level you take in Sorcerer to help you get more and more sorcery points, you also get a disadvantage. Points for it. You just get a disadvantage because sorcerers are weird. <laughs> and that's what I got. That's Barbarians of Lemuria. It is published by Beyond Belief Games and I recommend it. All right, well, I've been Ryan, the Nanite-infused rules guy. I'm Ben, the Parcel Select player. I'm Helen, the Solar-Powered Storyteller. And I am Jared, the Addicted to Individuality Game Master, and together we have been the Starting Equipment Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week as we talk about a couple of indie games that we really love, love, love. These are not going to be full reviews. It's just going to be, what are these indie people doing, and why has it captured our hearts so much? Look forward to giving you guys more content next week. Explore and change, wouldn't it be great?
So come down the sony 